Welcome to Beyond Carbon, the podcast where we find out how investors are thinking about climate change, sustainability, ESG, and a whole range of related issues beyond carbon. Welcome to another episode of Beyond Carbon. I'm your co-host, Chris Ito. Today, George Dyer and I are not going beyond carbon at all. Instead, we're discussing perhaps one of the most important tools that policymakers have to fight climate change, and that is measuring the economic cost of carbon emissions. And we're going to be talking about this with a man who arguably knows the concept better than anyone, and that is Dr. Michael Greenstone, who co-led the U.S. government's efforts to measure what he termed at the time the social cost of carbon while he served as the chief economist for President Obama's Council of Economic Advisors back in 2009 and 2010. And we get into a really interesting and pretty educational discussion about what is the social cost of carbon, how it's used today, and why carbon pricing more broadly is so important in shaping future climate policy, particularly in the United States. And we also go deep on the controversial topic of carbon offsets. And Michael helps us make sense of the difference between the much maligned voluntary offset market and the regulated cap-and-trade permitting systems. And finally, we finish by bringing it all together around a startup that Michael co-founded called Climate Vault. So think about Climate Vault as a solution that not only allows people, companies, and investors to offset emissions using regulated permits, but also helps to actually purchase carbon removal. And in doing so, it helps those emerging carbon removal companies to scale their technologies and bring the cost of removal down to a point where it becomes economical. So we're happy that Michael was available today to join us as he is certainly one of the world's foremost experts on climate finance. And he gives us a lot to think about just in terms of what role carbon pricing and offsets can and perhaps can't play as the world seeks to reduce emissions. So sit back and enjoy our back to school conversation with the University of Chicago's own Dr. Michael Greenstone. Hi, Michael. How you doing? Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm good. Uh, thank you for having me. Always happy to talk about climate change and carbon offsets. Yeah, we really, really appreciate you taking the time to do so with our audience. Um, and maybe before we jump into that, for those who might not be familiar, we'd love to have you just kind of provide a brief overview of your career and some of your work in academia and public service and, and around climate. Well, I I think I like to think of myself as a uh, reluctant academic. And the reason I'm a reluctant academic is I've lived with the nightmare that my work might only be a conversation between me and 15 people or so. <laughs> and I've been very interested and devoted to trying to find ways that what I've uncovered in my research uh, can influence and be helpful uh, to the real world. And so, you know, that has always like weighed on my mind, but at the same time, it was important to like kind of establish my bona fides as an academic. And so kind of my first decade as an academic, I kind of sat down and tried to learn something about the world that maybe other people didn't know. And then an opportunity came to work in the Obama administration its first year. And I, I, I grabbed that when it, when it arrived. You know, Michael, to set the stage perhaps for the discussion about offsets, maybe we can talk first about, I think, a subject that is pretty near and dear to your heart, and that is carbon pricing and the social 
cost of carbon, which you've you've obviously done a lot of work on. Maybe it will help give the listeners, I think, some context for the discussion of offsets. If you just describe for them, you know, what is the social cost of carbon and why is it important when we talk about solving climate change? Yeah, thank you for the question. So actually, when I was in the Obama administration, I, I went there to work, I thought, on designing a, a cap and trade program or a market for uh, carbon pollution for the that would cover the whole economy. And we worked very hard on that, and <clears throat> it wasn't to be through the legislative process. There are some funny stories along the path there, but it, it, it turned out that it didn't pass. And in truth, as early as February 2009, and when the economy was losing 700,000 jobs a month in the midst of the Great Recession, I became a little concerned that passing what many viewed as energy tax, as a carbon tax, might be difficult politically. And so I said to my friend and colleague, Cass Sunstein, one day when we were having lunch in the White House, hey, the president's been really clear about that he wants to do something about carbon. I think there better be a plan B. And we both knew what that meant. That meant... Uh, that the regulatory approach, as opposed to using a market, but having regulations that, say, restricted emissions from particular industries, had to be ready to go. And the challenge with that is that all regulations are required to be analyzed for both their costs and their benefits. And the costs are easy to calculate. They're in dollars. It costs more to produce a steel bar if you can't emit carbon or you have to re emit reduced amounts. Uh, but the benefits were measured in tons of carbon. And that seemed like a totally unfair fight, you know, dollars versus tons of carbon. I knew who was going to win that. And so uh, I said, Cass, I think the U.S. government has to have a social cost of carbon. Uh, and that is the dollar value, the damage associated with releasing an additional ton of CO2. And so if you avoid or have regulation that restricts, reduces the amount of CO2 emitted, now you have a measure of the benefits. And so this is kind of apples to apples. And so Cass and I convened an interagency group to set the U.S. government social cost of carbon, and that has now gone into regulations, and more than 100 regulations, more than a trillion dollars of gross benefits, uh, has been used over and over and over. And since my time in the Obama administration, I've done a lot of work to try and update the, our understanding of the damage associated with climate change, and that number has gone up and up over time. For what it's worth, if you want to make it concrete, the average American emits about 15 tons of CO2 per year, and each ton does about $200 worth of damage. So you could think the average American is walking around doing about $3,000 uh, worth of damages to their children and their children's children every year. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, Michael, you mentioned sort of that you know, potential disconnect between academia and, uh, and the real world. And I mean, it's been called the greatest market failure to not price in those real true costs of carbon emissions. And do you see that conversation shifting in the academic front? Because I think a lot of that does come from the mindsets of, uh, you know, economists getting trained in higher education and coming out to make policy. I think if you took a poll of economists, there's still, uh, you know, 95% who believe that the right thing is to set a price on carbon and kind of get out of the way. Mm -hmm. Make it so it's no longer free for me to pollute into the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And that that would lead to all kinds of innovation and development of new ideas and things like that. There has been some, I think, reflection about the failure to pass that. And economists may be failure to help convince the, the public that this was a good idea. Mm -hmm. 
And I think really some navel gazing about that. The thing that I find a little weird about that navel gazing is it's so U.S. centric. The United States, you know, we like to talk about American exceptionalism. (laughs) I think of American carbon exceptionalism. We're the only G7 country in the world that has failed to put a price on carbon. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I don't really think of the problem as a problem with carbon pricing. It's a problem that the U.S. is having with science and uh, economics that other countries do not seem to have. And I should add, China has one. India is developing one. U.S. exceptionalism is real here. Mm-hmm. It's not in a good way. You know, the social cost of carbon has fluctuated. It seems to the, I, I would think, to the average person has fluctuated pretty dramatically over the course of, let's say, the last 14 or so years, right? I mean, I think you started off at $51 during the Trump administration, went down to a dollar, back up to 51 and now you mentioned that it's close to $200. Can you talk about the reasons for why it's fluctuated so much? Yeah, yeah, that's a terrific question. I think what happened, the $51 was basically the frontier of our understanding uh, when it was set during the early to mid Obama years. Then the Trump administration, my own view is basically they took the social cost of carbon off the frontier of science and understanding Mm -hmm. and in a very political move turned it to one dollar. And the reason that was important is because it allowed for basically the weakening of lots of regulations that were restricting carbon emissions. And you know, once you're not bound by science and understanding, then you can kind of do whatever you want. And that's my analysis. That's basically what they did. More recently, the EPA has proposed that the number be about $200. And that comes from, I think, advances in understanding relative to maybe a decade ago. And a lot of my research has been at the center of that. And I've been very focused on trying to develop or improve the social cost of carbon. And, you know, there's many things that have gone into that. But one, I think, really stands out is when we set it at $51, there was not really an empirical foundation. That was like based on a bunch of very reasonable assumptions, but they were assumptions because they derived from an era when the literature didn't have like big computers and lots of data. Now we got data and computers, and that's like unlocking very different understanding of what the damages uh, from climate change are going to be or are uh, that we're already experiencing. And two things stand out. One, the damages are larger than we understood or our, our understanding of the likely damages are larger than we understood. And two, they're way more heterogeneous. Now, that's like a kind of a wonky word, but they're going to be way more unequal. If you want to put it in plain English, before we thought or assumed that the impacts across the United States would be identical, but of course, everyone kind of instinctually understands uh, in Minnesota, they're going to be very different than they are in Miami. And we're now kind of unlocking a much more nuanced picture of that that reflects the much larger damages, say, in Miami than in Minnesota. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think a, a really interesting whole other conversation around the role of AI and all of this, too, as we get a better understanding. The computers can do a lot. Yes, yeah, more and more every day. Michael, that just kind of shift us a little bit, though, to, you know, kind of this, you're thinking around carbon pricing and how that led you to found Climate Vault and just sort of, you know, how you see the voluntary carbon offset markets factoring into all this. And maybe just for our audience, give a quick overview of what Climate Vault is. Yeah, so quite frequently, I am was asked and am asked, 
but you know climate change can feel so big and so existential that people can feel a little helpless in the face of it and so i'm often asked well what can i do and you know the, the often by people who are like very judiciously and carefully and regularly recycling coffee grounds or doing some something like that and i think the important thing that can people can lose sight of is the planet only cares about one thing it cares about accumulation of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere mm -hmm. and that is like the acid test i think for how can i contribute to doing something about climate change and so i have been i was asked that for a long time and one effective answer is to try to offset one's emissions and so what does it mean to offset emissions that means I, as an average American, I'm doing my 16 tons per year, but maybe there's a way for me to reduce my emissions by doing some less carbon intense things, but there's going to be some emissions flying to see grandma and things like that, that I just can't get rid of. And so what if there was a way that I could pay someone else to reduce their emissions on my behalf and they would get money and I would have the feeling of having reduced my emissions. The problem, and that idea has been around for a quarter century. The problem has been, it's ex it, there's nothing wrong with the idea, it's a great idea, but the execution of that idea has been kind of somewhere between terrible and ineffective. Mm -hmm. And what do I mean by that? The main way that people have had to do this are projects like clean cook stove projects or uh, anti-deforestation projects or things like that, where you pay someone to do something that in principle is going to reduce uh, emissions. And the sad truth of that is that while those all sounded like great ideas, in practice, there's now like a, a, a littered history of these projects having failed to deliver uh, mm -hmm. the reductions. And so it leaves people feeling like, hey, maybe this whole thing isn't real or corrupt or, you know, at, at a minimum, without passing judgment, they're just not getting the reductions in emissions or offsets that they, they had hoped. So my idea was hey, isn't there a much simpler and much more credible way for people uh, and organizations to reduce their emissions? Uh, and that's the kind of genesis of climate policy. Yeah, no, I think that from what you described of the offset market, it almost seems like what you're saying is the market has developed and grown, but is it fair to say that the primary beneficiaries of that growth have not been has really not been the planet, but more so the participants in those activities, not to be crass about it. But is that is that a fair statement? Look, I think it's, a, it's been a bunch of very, very well-intentioned people and well-intentioned yeah. organizations that have been trying to set up these offsets. I just think we are now at a point where the climate problem is so urgent that it is not good enough to be well-intentioned. We have to go back to the acid test of does the planet care? Yeah. And the only thing the planet cares is uh, about is are there more CO2, more greenhouse gases accumulating in the atmosphere? So projects that fail to reduce emissions, no matter how well-intentioned, I think we just we have to turn down the dial on them. So maybe now is a good time to get a little bit deeper into Climate Vault itself and the use of regulated credits as almost a bridge toward carbon removal. And maybe that's too simplistic a way to sort of describe it, but I think it's a really interesting idea and I'd love to hear you, you know, sort of expand on that. So what is carbon removal? Carbon removal is a phrase that covers a very wide set of technologies, all of which have the feature that there's 
carbon that has already been emitted it's in the atmosphere and it's removed from the atmosphere. And there's something, you know, in its truest, most successful form, there's something very reassuring about that. You don't have to worry about whether or not a set of trees uh, was actually going to be cut down or the clean cook stoves were actually used. You can actually physically see or measure how the carbon that's being pulled out of the atmosphere. So that's a really appealing way for people to reduce their carbon footprint or offset their carbon footprint. The problem is, is that that's a very, very immature set of technologies at this point. Mm. And you can't go to the 7-Eleven and, you know, buy 10 tons of carbon removal. One day I hope you can, but you can't, you can't yeah. And that those technologies need to evolve. There needs to be more innovation. And in the meantime, people want to do something about their carbon footprint. And so what Climate Vault came up with as a solution is, hey, let's immediately get a reduction in a super credible way. And then when the time is right, let's turn that reduction into a removal. And so how do we get the reduction in the credible way today is that there are different regions in the United States. California is one and the other is uh, it's called Reggie. It's a set of nine or 10 states along the Atlantic coast that have banded together. And I think both of you are sitting in Reggie states right now to form carbon markets. And uh, the way those cap and trade markets work is the governments print a limited set of permits to emit CO2. And then the polluters kind of sort out who's going to use them using prices to do that. And what Climate Vault does is let's suppose, Chris, that you wanted to reduce your footprint by 100 tons. We would go on into those markets on your behalf, buy 100 permits to emit CO2, pull them out of the market, and then let the polluters sort it out. And all of the enforcement and credibility problems that have bedeviled offsets kind of melt away. Mm. Uh, and the reason they melt away is these are government enforced markets. And you can see in real time as a pro value, those permits uh, are, are, are traded all the time on financial markets that they're effectively being enforced. And so just to summarize what Climate Vault does is for donors, it goes into those markets, purchases reductions in CO2 that are effectively verified by governments, holds them. And then when the time is right, that is when there's been more development in carbon dioxide removal technologies, we'll swap those uh, reductions for removals. Mm. As an individual, is it difficult then for me, let's say I wanted to participate and buy permits per se, can I do that as an individual or do I need an organization like Climate Vault to facilitate that for me? I guess the best way to answer that is it took us somewhere between six to nine months to get registered <laughs> Got to it. do that. And our first application, I can't remember if it was Reggie or in uh, California, was rejected because we filled it in blue ink instead of black ink. I see. <laughs> And right. so it's, it, it's pretty onerous, but even if you could do that and you, you had the wherewithal to make your way through the process, the second step of what we offer uh, with the carbon dioxide removal is really unique. And so what we do is we have put together what I think of as a murderer's row of scientists, uh, I think really the world's leading experts on carbon dioxide removal, and they evaluate uh, carbon dioxide removal projects for how, how credible they are. They're chaired, this committee is chaired by the former Secretary of Energy, Ernie Moniz, mm -hmm. and has faculty from MIT, from Scripps, from Harvard, from Princeton. 
and it's really the world's leading experts and it, 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 it's a terrific group. And that's the second thing that we offer, which is helping to stimulate innovation in carbon dioxide removal mm -hmm. and then this outstanding group of scientists to make judgments about which projects qualify. Right. So what is the current cost, I guess, for removing yeah. carbon from the atmosphere using these technologies? And can you talk about it as well in relation to what we talked about earlier, which is the social cost of carbon? I mean, should we get to the point where, you know, the costs of removal ultimately end up being below the social cost of carbon, which means that it would be more economical if I Got that right? Yeah. So let's let me pick that apart into pieces. So the first thing is to offset a ton with climate ball costs. I think about twenty two dollars a ton. The social cost of carbon is about two hundred dollars a ton. So what that means is you can produce about two hundred dollars of benefits for the world at a cost of about twenty two dollars. So it's like it's hard to find opportunities where the benefits exceed the cost by ten to one. Yep. Uh, this is one of them. I think a second related question that you're asking, Chris, is when people think of carbon dioxide removal, the brain automatically, I think due to the media coverage, goes to one particular technology called direct air capture. Yes. And direct air capture is a extremely promising technology, but it is one that is in its super early days mm -hmm. and it costs a thousand dollars a ton or eight hundred dollars a ton. It's nothing that the average American or average person or average organization can afford at scale currently. And so what we're trying to do is uh, stimulate innovation in other varieties of carbon dioxide removal that are closer to the price conversions that you were outlining. Got it. And I mean, but let me just say, I'm all in favor of continued effort on that science project of, of reducing the cost of direct air capture, but we're going to need, you know, like a full zoo of carbon dioxide removal technologies. Uh, mm. We're going to need the giraffes and we're going to need the bears and we're going to need the lions and tigers. <laughs> we need innovation in all those areas. Mm -hmm. Michael, so a question kind of related to this idea of like the relative cost of removing or reducing a, a ton of carbon. Um, so at the Intentional Endowments Network, we work with a lot of endowments that are implementing net zero portfolio commitments and looking at the companies that they own in their portfolios, sort of their decarbonization trajectories or their their plans to get to net zero themselves. And I think there's often confusion around the role of offsets in these commitments. And some might say, oh, we've made a net zero commitment. Let's just get there right away by by purchasing offsets. Others would say, no, we've got to focus as much as we can on reducing every last ton of greenhouse gas that we emit ourselves that's at all feasible and then we just offset the last bit once we get there i sort of see potential flaws in both those approaches but i'm just curious like how you think about you know how a company should be utilizing offsets in a, a net zero or a, a paris line decarbonization pathway i mean i, I guess i have slightly different answers uh, if you're thinking of endowments or if you're thinking of uh, organizations, operational emissions. Yeah, well, I guess it's both. I mean, the endowments looking at the companies in their portfolio and those companies' organizational yeah. operations, but then also, yeah, at the portfolio level, they're having similar conversations of, should we just sort of look at measuring okay. emissions in our portfolio or should we buy some carbon offsets ourselves to, to make our portfolio carbon neutral? Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. Let me just... Mm -hmm pick off bits and pieces, and then you can redirect me if I've missed something. Look, there's a million ways for me to make it look like I've reduced my carbon emissions. As an organization, I can use a, a outside supplier and have them do all the emissions and mm -hmm. you know a variety of other kind of uh, tricks of the trade. 
what we come back to all the time at Climate Vault is the question of does the planet care? And I think the most direct thing that organizations can do is reduce their own emissions, that they have control over that. And not in a you know way where they offload them to somebody else, but they really find ways to reduce uh, their emissions. Mm-hmm. Uh, once they've done that, you begin to see how expensive it can get for a portion of the emissions. And that portion of the emissions, every organization will have their own cutoff. Mm-hmm. I think there's a very strong case for using credible offsets. And that, again, that's what Climate Vault tries to do. And the organizations we're working with all, that's kind of how they think about the problem. I want to talk for a minute about the endowments. You know, a traditional way, certainly that I, I teach at the University of Chicago, certainly that some of the students at the University of Chicago push, is, hey, we don't want fossil fuel companies in uh, the university's endowment. Mm-hmm. And I think that that often, you know, in most instances, I would give that an F with respect to does the planet care? You know, whether or not the University of Chicago has a fossil fuel company in its portfolio, I think changes global emissions of uh, greenhouse gases, you know, I would dare say zero. And so while the students might feel better that the fossil fuel company isn't in the portfolio, the students are still driving their cars and taking airplanes home and doing all the stuff that cause emissions. And what we have developed at Climate Vault is an alternative way for organizations and universities to reduce the emissions associated with their portfolio. And that is we count up the number of tons that their portfolio is responsible for. So if they owned 1% of IBM, we would assign 1% of IBM's emissions to them. And if they owned 2% of Ford, we would give them 2% of Ford's emissions and same thing with Oracle, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Add it all up. And then you know the number of tons associated with that. And then say, okay, well, now you can offset all of this or half of this or some portion of this. And that is a way that does not fail the acid test that does the planet care. And I think that is something that we're working with students uh, to understand better Mm. and universities to understand better. And I'll just say a surprising thing is that if you use Climate Vault, and this is like a conversation, I don't mean as an advertisement, but just to be so that we're talking in precise numbers, if you own the S&P 500, it would be about 14 basis points. So that's 14 one hundredths of 1%. Mm. Uh, per year to make holding the S&P 500 carbon neutral. So it's actually quite affordable and I think is something that is worth considering for organizations that are struggling with what to do about the emissions associated with my investments. Mm. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like a turnkey net zero it is. solution without disrupting the underlying management of the portfolio. Exactly. And so it's, you know, hey, let's manage the portfolio to maximize returns. Different people are going to have different ways to do that. That's great. You want to hold fossil fuel companies. That's great. You want to not hold them. That's great too. But whatever it is you're trying to do, let's figure out your missions and then let's offset them. And it saves organizations from the dreaded tracking error. You know, in the last year or two, as the energy company's price, the stock prices rose like crazy, any organization that thought that they found out the painful side of tracking error, which is when the energy companies go up, there's not really a perfect substitute for mimicking that. Right. Yeah, and I mean, one of the things I like about that approach on the net zero portfolio concept too, is that that you can sort of get to net zero now, as you described, 
but then also continue to send that signal to companies in every sector, you know, yep. as owners about how they can decarbonize over time in the real economy too. Yeah. You know, you obviously had a significant role in the federal government and shaping climate policy. Can you talk a little bit about the Inflation Reduction Act and how you see that accelerating not just our efforts to reduce emissions, but also accelerating the growth of carbon removal technologies? Look, the Inflation Reduction Act was a tremendous step forward for the United States government. I think it's the moment that the United States kind of entered the all of government approach to climate policy and was a big achievement. It is taking a very particular approach. There's a lot of choosing of which technologies. Uh, they did a good job of trying to limit that, but there's definitely some of that relative to just setting a market price and getting out of the way. And I think it also recognizes that the core problem of the, the reason we have a climate problem is that if you ignore the damages associated with fossil fuels, the climate damage associated with fossil fuels, the core problem is that the fossil fuels are in most instances less expensive uh, than the zero carbon fuels, the renewables or nuclear or whatever it is. And so I think of that as the delta, the difference between the fossil fuels and the zero carbon ones. And it's definitely putting a lot of bets on how to shrink that delta. And that's going to pay off, you know, to the extent that works, it's going to pay off for the world. It'll pay off for the United States. And so that was, it was a very important piece of legislation. And, you know, like all legislations, there's things to pick at and be troubled by, but I think directionally was very important. On carbon dioxide removal, it also plays some bets you know, I'm not a expert on all features of it, but I think largely, almost entirely on direct air capture rather than the broad suite of technologies that really comprise carbon dioxide removal. And so there's still a lot of room for sending market signals that would unleash innovation in other areas of carbon dioxide removal. And that's, you know, Climate Vault think there's a, thinks there's a very wide space of potential areas of innovation that need to be incentivized. And that's what we're trying to do. Can you talk a little bit more about sort of the technologies that you end up evaluating vis-a-vis -vis the tech chamber, or is that that's sort of the secret sauce? It's not proprietary. I don't. We don't really know where it's going to go. I mean, but so there's things like mineralization. There's things like using the oceans. There's using replacing steel with wood and construction of buildings. There's biochar. There's a, a whole suite of technologies. And we're just in the early days of carbon dioxide removal. And I, I don't want to call it a fool's game to predict where it's going to go, but like the point is to reward innovation there and let it, you know, shoot down the highway wherever it happens to go. And, you know, I'm probably not the right person to give you an updated view or, you know, the most up-to-date view on which technologies look promising. I, I have a kind of very economics viewpoint, which is, Let's set the incentives and let the smart entrepreneurs and technologists figure out what to do. Do you think, Michael, on that sort of balance between incentives versus recognizing the costs that, you know, obviously there's a timing element to all of this. The, the faster we can reduce emissions and, and remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, the better as, as the impacts of climate change grow. But, you know, as you described, I think this incentive approach is sort of more politically feasible and working better right now. Do you think that effort to Price carbon really account for those true costs is less important now, or do you think that needs to continue on to get that full national kind of price on carbon going forward? 
Oh, I think there's no doubt that it would be enormously beneficial in confronting a climate challenge to for people to face the costs uh, of their actions or the cost of their emissions in all forms, be it through driving or be it through flying or you know whatever it is, and that that would unlock all kinds of innovation. That's not to say that we shouldn't have research and development policies, some of which are embedded in the Inflation Reduction Act. Mm-hmm. We absolutely need them. There's not enough innovation. There's not enough incentive for innovation. But setting a price on carbon emissions would be a you know, tried and true way to unlock a lot of the innovation that's necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I mean, that's my firm belief. I think there's centuries of evidence on that. <laughs> but I also, you know, politics are politics. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'll just come back to, you know, the exceptionalism of U.S. carbon policy. Mm-hmm. All right. So perhaps, Michael, this is a good place to to leave it. I guess if you had to sort of end our or close our conversation with one last thought, are you optimistic about the world getting its act together on climate change? Hate to put you on the spot with such a weighty question, but I think you're as good a person as any to, to weigh in. Yeah, I think the great challenge and why my friend, no longer alive, Marty Weitzman once called it the problem from hell is that it looks so different depending on where you are in the world. Mm. And in rich countries like the United States, it's a priority or it should be a priority. And we're beginning to act like that. And that makes me optimistic. I think it is also true that we sometimes forget or don't keep front of mind that emissions in Mumbai or emissions in Beijing have the same impact on Americans as emissions that originate in Detroit or Memphis. And it's really critical, and it's going to be hard to convince those countries, and I believe if I were them, rightly so, to reduce their emissions today because they have kind of maybe more urgent needs like electricity and things like that. So that's what makes the climate problem so hard. Having said that, I'm of the every ton matters school of thought. And I think, you know, we now have emerging understanding that every ton that we can reduce will save our children and their children, you know, $200 worth of damages from the social cost of carbon. And I think if we remain laser focused on that, I'm optimistic that we're going to make the world much less bad than it might have been for our children. And in the process, hopefully unleash innovation and we're going to get lucky and find some easy way for the whole world to participate uh, in in reducing their emissions. Mm -hmm. Well said. Well, Michael, thank you again so much for the time and and also for all the work you've done on this. I think it's really helped uh, society understand this this challenge better and uh, hopefully make some of that progress quickly. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for your time, Michael. Take care. Take care.